Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for the 9th of October 2013. And joining me on this edition are AV Forums Assistant Editor Steve Withers. Choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a big f***ing television. Games Editor Mark Botwright. He knows a lot about Sean Connery. That girl got glassed and no c***s leaving here until we find out what c*** did it. That a good one? Yeah, you're yeah. cracking out the bleep machine early, though. <laughs> I don't think there's going to be uh, people not knowing what film it is this week. Anyway, um, we are a little bit short and it's all because uh, not of... Not just in stature. Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah good one um so we're a little bit we're a little bit short this week in terms of uh, uh personnel um so we don't have ed and uh, we don't have our news editor mark um mark couldn't find babysitters uh, and ed has had to uh, leave quickly today um and we'll leave it at that he might have some news for us uh, on next week's podcast anyway moving on you will have noticed it has been a little bit quiet when it comes to hardware uh, reviews recently. Obviously, we are working hard on the new AV forums, and it, uh, it is still coming soon. And because of that, we've uh, we've had to put some reviews on the back burner. But interestingly, uh, Steve, you got some new KEF speakers through for review. Um, tell us about this. Yeah, I think KEF, like everybody else, has noticed that modern TVs sound a bit rubbish. So they've um, they've developed a line of. Um, New speakers, basically small speaker packages uh, that are designed to complement your modern smart TV. Uh, I'm using them with the Kuro, and I have to say that the design of the V300s looks particularly nice with the Kuro because they are black um, and about the right height, actually, as well. They're almost perfect design for it. Now, I suspect that's not the case. I'm sure they're obviously looking at other things like Panasonic's and that sort of stuff. But it's a happy coincidence for me. Um, it, basically, it's two speakers and a small amplifier. And when I say small, I mean genuinely small. Uh, it's only um, about five, six inches uh, wide and about an inch and a half high. It's, it's tiny. And the reason for this, it's so small is because it's designed to either be um, positioned somewhere out of the way in, a, in an equipment rack, or it could be attached to the v, VSA mounting VESA. Visa. Let's <laughs> Visa call the whole like thing credit. off. That sounds like a credit card. <laughs> yes, the wall mounting uh, attachments at the rear of the TV. Uh, it can be attached to those instead to put it out of the way. Or it can also be wall mounted if, if necessary to put it out of the way, um, which makes it quite flexible in that sense. And then you have the two speakers and it comes with cabling as well. And the idea is that you connect the device, the amplifier to your TV via HDMI. It's got ARC, audio return channel, and then you can control it through the TV remote. And you basically have vastly superior sound compared to the built-in amplification and speakers of the television itself. Uh, it's 50 watts per channel. Um, I've, I've had it for about a few days now, and I've got to say it sounds fantastic. It's really good. Obviously, it's vastly superior to um, to built-in amplification on a TV. Uh, the Cura doesn't have any um, speakers, so that's very handy. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it really makes a nice combination. And, um, I, you know, I've used it with both... Um, TV programs, movies, and music as well. And, and even with music, you know, this being Kef, they, they really have put a lot of thought in the design of the speakers themselves, and they really do sound excellent. And the amplification, whilst maybe not earth-shattering, is certainly more than sufficient for, for a living room and for TV watching and, and casual music listening. So uh, I think an all-round winner from, from Kef there, and um, pretty competitively priced as well. Of course, a cynic in us would say that TV manufacturers are deliberately making their TVs so slim that uh, they're creating a, a, a new market where they can all start selling us sound bars and sound devices and so on. 
obviously just the cynics in us would say that. I'm, I'm not saying that that's what I'm saying, but... I did um, actually ask, uh, uh, I think it was Samsung, I said to them, why don't you make a TV and not bother with the speakers at all? You know, just make a monitor like, like the Kuro was. Yeah. Because... Uh, you know, we all know that the sound isn't going to be very great, and, it's, and most people buying an expensive TV will probably be using some sort of you know, outboard solution anyway. Yep. And they said, oh, well, our, our CEO, he, he really wants the TV to be an all-in-one solution, and he wants, therefore he wants sound in it too, um, which is what they said. So I guess, but yeah, you're right, there is a whole, whole I mean, the soundbar market and, and sort of outboard amplification and speaker market has absolutely exploded in the last four years as TVs have got thinner. Um, this obviously is preferable, in my opinion, to a pure soundbar because it is two stereo speakers either side of the TV, um, and and obviously so you, get, you get a much wider sound field at the front, better stereo separation, um, and so it might, for my money at least, preferable to an actual soundbar. Um, it sounds great. I mean, genuinely talking about smart TVs, this genuinely happened to me this week. I was speaking to someone about smart TVs. And I started, well, they actually asked me the question, you know, what, what is it about this smart TV and all that? So I started telling them about all the features of smart TVs, and they were like, what are you talking about, internet and, and video and iPlayer? I, th- I thought they were smart TVs because of how they looked. I just thought they looked smart, <laughs> that's why they were called smart TVs. Uh, which, I suppose, kind of brings us on to the next subject, which is how manufacturers are selling uh, technology to the consumer. You know, they, these buzz lines that, they, that they're always coming out with, and, and Samsung's the latest one, Life in Every Pixel, is their new slogan to promote OLED TVs. Um, life in every pixel, unless it's a dead one, which Mark kept uh, going on about that joke. Yeah, he's very proud of that joke, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is the thing. I mean, it's, you know, manufacturers they've always come up with, and we kind of discussed it last week with Alotosh got to Shiba. Um, they come up with these slogans, which Samsung are famous for. You know, buy an LED TV. Well, <laughs> actually, there's no such thing as an LED TV. Everybody knows, or everybody should know, that it's an LCD TV with LED backlighting. Um, unfortunately, which uh, don't know that, um, I wrote, read an absolutely terrible article this week. Um, and it's not like us to pick on people in this field um, or talk about other websites. But yeah, it, it, uh, you, you pointed it out to me and I had a quick look. And uh, when it opens up with, when you're buying a TV, you've only got a choice of LCD or LED. I mean, first of all, they've forgotten about plasma. And, and secondly... An LCD and an LED TV are exactly the same. It just, have, as you said, Phil, have a different backlight. Um, the, the level of ignorance from what's supposed to be, you know, consumer um, uh, experts is, is staggering, to be honest. And people make inf- decisions, sometimes big ticket purchases on the back of things like this. And, you know, when they don't even know what they're talking about, I really do despair. Uh, and, you know, I think pe- they should be picked up on it, really, I mean, as we are doing right now, because, frankly, it's, it shouldn't be allowed. This whole kind of argument about um, terms used, I mean, if, from a kind of etymological point of view, there is a, a point at which almost a new definition of a term must supersede something. From, from a what? Uh, et- Etymo- what? To do with the meaning and, and origin of words. Like, uh, like the word literally, which has now had its meaning Yes, changed. exactly. <laughs> that literally annoys me. You know. Well, yeah, no, I mean, t- t- seriously, the, the, the Oxford English Dictionary has changed the definition of literally to include the meaning well, they've metaphorically. Literally, they've literally changed it. <laughs> well, people are so dumb, they don't know what literally means. So they're using it instead of, instead of metaphorically. Um, and so rather than just, you know, shoot people that are stupid, which is what they should be doing, they've, they've gone and changed definition. Don't, don't, that's don't, where, don't pander to idiots. But that's kind of where I think, do think, though, some people are using the term LED. 
in in the fact that it's you're swimming against the tide if you want to genuinely educate people about what led tvs actually are so it's almost easier just to go with this definition of saying led I, I don't, I don't or have lcd a, i don't have a problem no. with that mark what i have a problem with is a sentence um well a couple of sentences but the main sentence basically said led picture is made up of tiny little led lights which make the picture which well, he's actually just described there as an oled tv but it, it's completely wrong if he yeah. just said LED has different backlight to an LCD, then everybody's happy because then the customer knows what they're buying. The other thing was that he said he said it generally gives a better picture quality. Um, well, no. Nope. <laughs> um, I'd say the opposite most of the time. <laughs> uh, because most of the time, the LEDs are edge uh, mounted, which means that you will get cloud and you will get... Um, uh, cones of of light or cones of darkness because of the the light's not spread properly across the back of the screen. Whereas the old CCFL uh, technique, which was tubes behind light tubes, basically behind the the LCD panel, um, gave far better uniformity in in terms of the light across the whole screen. Whereas LED really struggles. So it wasn't it wasn't just a case he was using the term LED TV because let's be honest, we use that terminology as well. But it was the fact that he was trying to say that the LEDs made up the picture, wrong. Uh, there was thousands of them behind the screen, um, only true in full backlight LED or crystal, TVs. Or crystal, crystal LED TV. Which doesn't exist, <laughs> uh, other than a concept. Then saying that picture quality was better and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just so full of mistakes uh, and and basically bad advice. But when they're giving this type of information out and genuinely saying this is expert information, you can trust us, and it takes us two seconds to look through it and think, my God, um, they're not doing the job, and they, need, and they need people to say, hang on, you're not doing your job right there. That's wrong. Stop that. Honestly, we've been through this with HDMI, haven't we? If if that wasn't the kind of straw that broke the camel's back, I don't think LED is going to do it. I think, the, I think the, the consumer caught on quite quickly with HDMI. And really, and you've been into especially cables. Especially, Have you been into yeah. PC world recently? Yeah. Well, I but that's PC world. I'm, what I'm saying is the consumer, and generally most of the consumers. If you look through, not just our forums, but other forums right across the internet, and and not just on this subject of AV, um, you know this this question comes up on all sorts of different uh, message boards and forums and all over. And I'm quite happy to see that in the majority of cases, people are saying, don't spend any more than a five or a 10 or on a cable. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame them, them at the retailers for, for, you know, they're trying to make money. You know, at the end of the day, it's a high margin product for them. So I, I don't blame them for pushing expensive HDMI cables. I do get angry if the press, the, the tech press, starts spouting utter bollocks about or, you know, improvements in picture quality with an HDMI yeah, cable. Just, just reviewing them and saying the blacks are better, motions, yeah, yeah, hand, exactly. motions handle that, better. Hang on, is this, is, this, is this cable also a video processor? It, it's now improved the motion? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that kind of cobblers yeah. really does piss me off. Actually, uh, I, I do resent retailers, especially the big store retailers who push 80, 80 quid HDMI cables onto, um, onto your granny who's in there just replacing her TV and doesn't need, just doesn't need it. I, 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 do, I do feel really sorry for the poor old consumer sometimes because not only do you have ignorance within the so-called, you know, media, the expert media, um, not only you have ignorance there, which is misleading, but you also have the manufacturers themselves coming up with various terms, which ultimately are misleading. And you know, the, the poor, poor consumer has been bombarded with. We've gone from um, what we had recently. So, we have, well, LED and LCD. So, I mean, that's the term using the term LED TV was very much Samsung marketing campaign to try and make it seem like it was a different technology. 
which has worked quite well because which thinks it is. Uh, um, but it isn't. They're going to have a problem now with the, and hence the whole life in every pixel ca- advertising campaign for o- OLED because that is a completely different technology. Um, but people are going to be standing there thinking, well, hang on a minute, I've already got an LED TV, haven't I? What's the difference? So they've got to explain that away as well as try and sell uh, what is a relatively expensive television. You've had HD ready and full HD, uh, active and passive 3D, and now we've, now we've got 4K and ultra HD just to really confuse the poor sod. So, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to feel really sorry for the consumer sometimes when they go into a, either online or into a store looking to buy some new technology and just bombarded with, with um, acronyms and, and, and uh, various misleading terms along with uh, ignorant tech sites and, um, and um, salesmen who are out to make a margin and therefore going to stitch you up. Which is why I don't think you will see any kind of TVs or mainstream TVs come out without any speakers because the kind of outcry over that, however many people would take the TV home, plug it in, and then suddenly realize there's yeah, no, no sound. Yeah, no, you could only do it on a high-end, oh, enthusiast-style TV. I love exactly. it like the current words. It, 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 yeah, if you sold a 500 quid tell you that speaker's in it, you're going to get slaughtered because people are going to just say, what the hell? Because those aren't kind of people. People that buy a TV, it's in Sainsbury's, right? A, don't read reviews. B, uh, certainly are going to have an AVR in the lounge, are they? They're going to plug it straight into a Blu-ray player or their Skybox and they sit down and eat the crisps they bought in Sainsbury's at the same time. So, you know, there is a, there are very different markets. But I do think when it comes to the enthusiast end of the TV market, um, you know, there is an argument for saying, well, why, why not uh, do a TV without speakers? No, I, I definitely think that that's right. But I'd say there's, there's this kind of weird overlap, though, between the markets, which is people up to a certain price point tend to put more of a focus on image quality and so therefore you will get in just general uh, electronics retailers rather than the specialist ones you will see far more expensive televisions and displays than you ever will any kind of try finding a pair of speakers in in anything other than a specialist store these days you know whereas you go into a a, a more upmarket retailer that's looking at the specialist end of the market and it will be almost at least half the store will be devoted to audio. Okay, so uh, leaving the press to one side and at the same time, let's move on to the stores. Now, this is a subject that we have have thought about for a long time, Steve. We've even spoken, and we're not going to name names or anything like that, but um, we've even spoken to some big retailers and offered them uh, staff training or offered them the idea of staff training to try and get the staff level, knowledge level, up to a certain level that um, is doing the consumer good, doing the sales staff good, and getting the correct information out there. And time and again, the one thing that kept coming back to us was staff turnover. Yeah, yeah. It is a big problem. I mean, any kind of store, uh, and, and I'm not picking on anyone here because it is the, just the way of the world, is you know, they have generally staff well, in their sort of between 18 and 25 and the turnover is pretty high. And if you spend a lot of time and money training somebody and then they leave within a few weeks of doing that, there's just not, you know, you'd understand from the point of view of economics for the store, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Clearly, from the point of view of the consumer, it would be great to have an, an, a well-informed, well-trained salesperson. And obviously, in very specialist stores, you'd expect to get that. But in the bigger, you know, the bigger sort of um, box and you know, pile of high box, out box of, sellers. Out of town places. Yes. Yes. You're and- not going to... Uh, you're not going to get that, and 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 I I sympathise with them because you know what can you do? You, if you spend money trading somebody and they leave, that's money you've just wasted. Yeah. In yeah. what's already a spectacularly competitive market, if you're yeah. talking when high street retailers are already under significant pressure from the internet. 
We, uh, and we you can't a, afford to be wasting money, which you haven't got in the first place. We did a, a thing about four years ago. I think it was just before you started with us, Steve and Mark. Um, we'd planned to do a video basically of uh, going into some uh, pretty large retailers, um, posing as a couple. Uh, yeah, I remember this. And basically asking the questions that normal consumers would ask and see what, what type of advice we would get back. And, and in the end, we didn't publish that because we thought it would cause more issues than actually solving. And, and the idea of the piece was to try and solve a problem, see what the problem was, and then try and solve the problem. And uh, in the end, it was just going to be too much uh, it was too much work. It was too much, probably in the wrong direction. Because I think, you know, putting that kind of stuff on the internet, people would take it the wrong way, um, and then start creating all sorts of conspiracies, which wasn't the point of the piece. But generally, the the advice in three of the four big stores that we went into was utter drivel. It really was bad. I mean, in one store, I got told I needed to have the plasma regassed every five years. I'd heard people say that they'd been given that advice. I didn't really believe it. I thought it was an urban myth until I was stood in that store posing as a customer. Uh, we had hidden video cameras and mics and so on. Um, and that was the advice I was given. However, in the fourth store, we actually got somebody that was genuinely interested in the subject. And it was a, it was a big retailer, a big out-of-town retailer, but the guy knew stuff. He knew, he knew the difference between an LED TV, an LCD TV, and a plasma TV. He explained it in nice, easy-to-understand terminology for a customer. Uh, he took us across and showed us each separate model, uh, given the, the plus points and the negative points of each of the technologies. When pushed, he said his favourite was plasma. Um, we asked to see plasma screens. He took us across and gave us a, a fairly decent demonstration of that. So that kind of shows you if you get somebody that's interested in the technology, interested in it and likes to sell it and, and gives good advice, then you know, the customers going into that store are getting good service. But in the three others, you know, that's that's one in four where we got good advice, basically. The three others were absolutely terrible. And he tried to sell us a £90 HDMI cable because it would give a vastly superior picture, better black levels, better colour, the usual, which was quite sad to see, to be honest. But again, it comes back to staff turnover. It comes back to the staff being interested. You know, you know at the end of the day, People who work in stores, they do it so they can get a wage and they can live, basically. And not not all of them are going to be interested in the subject or what it is that they're selling. Yeah, I mean, I guess, to be honest, <clears throat> that that applies to just about everything, doesn't it, in life, really? There's always going to be those that really enjoy their job and are interested in it and those that aren't. Those are just doing it for the money, for the paycheck. I think it's um, one of the weird... What can you do? <laughs> it is one of those weird situations where... You know, everyone thought that, in fact, online businesses in some ways were going to be worse simply because you couldn't get that advice. You can't just automatically speak to someone, find a, a sales assistant. But as soon as you've got shops that, say, offer a commission for anything for to kind of supplement a wage, then you're kind of on slightly dodgier ground, I always think. And, and in fact, that's one area where you've seen a lot of online e-tailers uh, with – the instant chat feature and things like that that are actually very, very handy. And, and of course, the, sorry, sorry, Steve, of course, the, that's a huge point that you've just made there, Mark. And, and the flip of the coin is when you're doing it on the internet, you can do your research. So you can come to places like AV forums and there are other forums available out there <laughs> uh, and, and other websites and review sites. And um, you can go and look at this kind of thing. You don't have to go in any great depth, but 
Um, you could come on AV Forum to say, what's this Toshiba TV like? And you would get a reply within, you know, an hour of at least somebody would give you some kind of reply to that. Then you can go to the chat windows on these retailer sites. You also have the um, Sales of Goods um, Act, which is that you've got seven days to return it. Now, there are some, there is some abuse <laughs> when it comes to that. Um, I think it's it's basically you've changed your mind, you haven't taken it out of the box, and you get them to come and pick it up within seven days or something like that. That's my understanding of it. Although retailers, like big retailers, um, and I'm not going to mention them, um, will take it back after seven days, even if you've taken it out of the box, watched it, didn't like it, take it back. So there's huge advantages of the online route. There is one major disadvantage, though, depending on obviously what you're buying and how much you're prepared to spend. But one thing you can't do uh, is demo the product. Uh, and so therefore you are well, very well, dependent upon well, third-party information sometimes. Like I was just saying, though, there is abuse of this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this sales are good. You can have it in your own home. You can quickly look at it, see see what you think of it, put it back in the box, get them to pick it up again. And there are retailers who will do that. There's other retailers who won't, and I'm not condoning the uh, abuse of the system in any way. I don't think we should anyway. do that, to be honest. When I, when, before I left this country for a long time, you know, back in those days, if you bought something and it was fit for its purpose and you didn't want it, tough shit. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think you should be able to just chop and change and send stuff back because you've changed your mind. I mean, that's not fair on the retailer, for one thing. They're already in enough trouble yeah, without but, uh, people, you know. Yeah, but then sense. you've got these, you know, major uh, multinationals who are quite happy to do that, seemingly, yeah. you know, allegedly. Uh, but it was an important point that you picked up on there, Mark. The online is changing it. And, and this is where I don't understand the retailer's point of view. Because if I was a retailer, and I'm not, and maybe I would be useless at selling things and all. But the logical step to me is that um, the one thing I can give over over and above the internet is customer service. That That's the one goal I've, I've got there because I can get the customer face-to-face um, and give them fantastic service. So they're more inclined to come back to me. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's a good point, but ultimately, it, you know, it's not going to save a lot of the high street. You know, um, I've seen there was a local camera shop that was very specialist that shut down, and then the chap running it gave us his reason, which was people come in, they talk to me for an hour, pick my brains about everything, and then you know, walk outside, check their smartphones, see where they can buy it online for twenty pounds cheaper, and then just go home. Yeah, that's true. That happens a lot. I've done that. <laughs> We've all done that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the argument there has always been, well, charge them for the service, especially demos. Um, if you're giving up your time as a shopkeeper to demonstrate something, charge the customer for it. How would you feel if you walked in and the retailer says, yeah, you can demo that, but it'll cost you 10 quid. 10 quid deposit. You buy the thing, I'll give you a tenner back. Well, just go home, order it, and if they don't like it, send it back. <laughs> yeah, so, well, so what is the solution? That... Because a bricks and mortar retailer is never going to be able to match on price. The only thing that they can do over and above is fantastic customer service and being there for the customer if things go wrong. Specialist retailers, basically. Um, I, I think you, you're going to see up to a certain point in the market just basically um, consumed by the supermarkets and then anything above that will stay in specialist, you know, hi-fi retailers and the like, but it will be a case of you'll pick up your Samsung TV from Sainsbury's or somewhere. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, um, when I first moved down to where I live in the northeast of England now, um, there was six specialist dealers, all of them fantastic. I got on with all of them really well. 
They had great facilities. Some of them had absolutely superb demonstration rooms, costing a lot of money to put these rooms together so they could demonstrate the stuff um, to the best of its ability and so on. All six are gone. All six of them have gone bankrupt. I, th I think ultimately um, the responsibility is going to have to lie with the manufacturers, depending obviously on, on what their market is. And obviously if, you're, if your market is cheap budget stuff, you're not going to give a damn. But if you're a manufacturer of a higher end, you know, more product that, and you want it to be presented in its best possible light, because we've been to um, places, haven't we, Phil, where, you know, the products are there, but they've been set up wrong, they look terrible. You know, it was the weak link in the chain for any manufacturer is the point of sale. You know, if it's if it's not sold correctly or if they're being given duff information or if it's set up badly, then they, their product may be excellent, but it won't sell. So maybe the manufacturer needs to take more responsibility in terms of um, brick and mortar stores, helping them, supporting them, and not providing not providing product for the you know e-tailers e because we have seen some manufacturers doing that in the last couple of years. Well, I guess there is the Apple model, and they seem to be doing all right with that because they offer online. They also offer. Uh, in store and the way it's all set up you can actually use the product you can pick it up you can play with it um, you have some manufacturers who have their, their outlets like the Sony centers and Panasonic, Panasonic centers yeah. which are franchised you know they have some control over that but at the end of the day it, it's it's a retailer who takes on a franchise account to open up a, a Panasonic store or a Sony store not quite the same as the Apple model but they have to do something um, otherwise the high street well, if it's not dead already, it, it's on its last legs. It it gets brought up in virtually everything, in in every kind of technological field, when the term Apple model is used. But I just think that it's it's something that people will continue chasing. We've seen kind of Microsoft shift towards that way. We've seen various um, businesses try to build the same kind of ecosystem. But there's just whatever it is, whatever lightning in a bottle Apple have, they've just managed to kind of patent it and market it so perfectly that I just really don't think that anyone can follow that. They also have a very limited product range. I mean, we're talking about some tablets, you know, some iPads, MacBooks, uh, Mac Pro, um, iMacs, Mac Pro, and phones, you know, iPhones. Which in any other pods. field would see them die on their backside. Yeah. So you haven't reinvigorated this line in an age and you know one of the big things was changing you know to like aluminium bodies with laptops you just think how has that managed to you know you know sell out of all pre-orders or and that kind of thing whatever it is they've got you know they just seem to be able to market it so perfectly yeah, that it, I, I i really don't think you know every time that someone says that microsoft should take a leaf out of apple's book i just think that will see them you know go off into oblivion they just <laughs> won't be able to do it well it's it's just one of these things that apple have got it right and and i can't walk past an apple store i've i've <laughs> got to go in uh, it's um, like going it's like walking into the future oh it's fine whenever i walk into no, an apple store it's like yeah this maybe, is maybe I want not to but live. i i think a lot of it's 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 the the Design and the de des desirability of the product. Yeah, which was always it, their, um, Steve Jobs' intention, wasn't it? Yeah, and and that's the one thing. It, you know, you've got your Apple bashers, and and I've got to say, there's not as many as there used to be, but at the end of the day, it's 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 a it's a status symbol. It's something that you have to own to show off to your mates and and so on. That's that's basically what they've what what they've made of the brand there. It's it's you know it's expensive. It's not necessarily as well equipped as a competition. I mean, you could go and buy a 
spend the same type of money on a MacBook Pro as, and you could go to the PC side and get a machine that's three times faster, three times bigger hard drive, three times better graphics card. But for some reason, people want the Apple. They want they want the shiny. Well, Apple. is that true though, Phil? Because we had that massively spec'd PC laptop, Windows laptop that we you got for editing purposes, and uh, the MacBook Pro pissed all over it, didn't it? So. <laughs> Well, yes, it did actually. <laughs> so actually, I mean, I've got an iMac. I'm looking at it right now, you know, and it, it works brilliantly. It's slick, it's fast, it's cool, it looks lovely, and I, I think it's great. It, but that's what they've done, basically, Mark, isn't it? They're, they're, they're selling you something desirable. It, it necessarily, it might not be the best thing, but it looks nice. It's well built, uh, it, and it's expensive, and you can I, show it off. I think the key is it works. That's usually the one thing that you know people who own Apple products usually say, particularly with computers, is it just works. I know I could get a faster processor. I know I could get something that scores higher benchmarks, but I know this will work. It's like you know, kind of at a certain point, uh, you know, kind of eighties onwards, it was always German cars because they'd start. Yeah, you know, that's what you're buying with an Apple product. Well, that's that's my experience. My own personal experience is I bought a MacBook Pro. Retina, uh, had it specced up to the high spec. I bought that at Christmas. Before that, the business had paid quite a bit of money for a custom PC for video editing and this custom laptop. Um, for the first year of uh, the desktop and the laptop, they had to keep going back to the supplier because of issues, mainly memory issues. There were bottlenecks and, and all sorts, so it was slowing, slowing the, the machines right down. But this Apple never had a problem with it. And I can edit just as just as long a video, just as complicated a video, on it, and I'm getting it in real time. And that's against machines costing many thousands more. So personally, from my experience, that rings true. It works, and my iPhone as well. Never had a problem with it. I'll second, I'll second that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. We're all biased now because we yeah. like Apple. <laughs> that's usually how it works on the internet, isn't it? You say something yeah. about positive about Apple, and then you're a fanboy. Uh, anyway. So we've sorted out the high street, have we? Uh, well, possibly. <laughs> I think we just rang its death death knell. I, I, it's one of these subjects. I mean, the economy is supposedly uh, on its way back. It'll be interesting to see if that is the case and how things progress in the next twelve months. And interestingly, as well, we've been working st- sticking with hardware. We've been working on the uh, on the new AV forum site coming soon, and um, and I've been entering records from six years ago, Steve today um entering reviews that we've written and so on and, and making sure they're formatted correctly for the new site when it goes live so it all looks nice and it's amazing how quickly things have moved on in the last six years i'm absolutely astonished of the the amount of stuff that we just take for granted now in products when they come in for review such as 3d such as um you know hd uh, video processing um you know the multi-channel audio formats like uh True HD, Master Audio, yeah. all that kind of thing, which was in its infancy six years ago. Uh, that was around about the time HD, DVD, Blu-ray, that whole debacle that went on. Um, and just seeing how the technology, especially smartphones, smartphone technology, tablets, tablets were unheard of six years ago. It really is amazing to see how far we have come. I, well, I've been, uh, just like you, I, I'm, this morning I put in um, all the JVC projector reviews and... Obviously, the first one was the HD one, which you reviewed, which was a real game changer at the time. Uh, and now you go to sort of the X35, which has got vastly superior performance and and features, 
including 3D and lens, lens memory and all sorts of things. Um, and it's 2,800 quid. <laughs> so it's staggering not only how much more we've got, but how much cheaper it's become. One area that d it moves slowly, Mark, is, is the gaming side of things, especially if you're talking about consoles. Uh, life cycles, what, seven years, eight years for a console? Yeah, about that. But we're about to see the next big step on. So, you know, getting your crystal balls out, uh, crystal ball out, where do you see things? Uh, just looking at how things move on. Um, what, as in who might end up top of the pile or, or what kind of innovations we'll see? Yeah, all of that. And will will we still be gaming on consoles in, in a few years? Um, well, I think it's it's kind of interesting simply because of the backlash against the Xbox One. There was this assumption that we would be moving to this all digital future, but due to, again, Microsoft's slightly shaky PR, it seems to have kind of scared the horses and that everyone's now you know, sure that as soon as someone talks about digital distribution that it's kind of work of the devil. Um, but with entering the field the, the from Valve, their Steam box could kind of bridge that gap because the, the sales on Steam, if there's one thing that's going to convince people to, to go over to digital distribution, it's getting a decent discount. So I think that will definitely be a, a, a game changer. Um, beyond that, will we still be gaming on on consoles and the like it's you imagine that as broadband speeds get faster and as streaming technology gets better that you know there will be other options for for the majority of people um but as a specialist product i still think there's a there's a place for consoles because you know it's it's a little bit like you know some people have thrown away said i don't need a tablet because i've got a smartphone and some people you know don't tend to use laptops anymore but there's still that market there there's you know that we talked about apple they're still selling macbook pros you know there's a reason those things still exist so moving on to games news uh, mark some interesting stories i've got to say the red cross story um where they want gamers to suffer virtual consequences of online war crimes tell me about it um, yeah, it, it's, it does sound bizarre, and, and but reading about it, perhaps it's not quite as mad as it initially sounds. Um, yeah, basically, they, the International Committee of the Red Cross would like the Geneva Convention in some way integrated into real-world or real-world-like war games. So basically, if you, you know, commit some kind of war crime, if you shoot civilians or the like, there should be some kind of consequences. They've said uh, game scenarios should not reward players for actions that in real life would be considered war crimes. Uh, but then they've gone on to say they don't actually want censorship. They just want to avoid it being trivialised. Um, it's it's an interesting approach. It, it smacks of someone who, who wants some kind of PR and wants the the phrase Red Cross in the news at a time coming up to Christmas when people might be giving to charity, perhaps. But uh, perhaps that's just me being a cynic. Uh, because I, I just can't see... Either they're so out of touch as to think this makes a difference, or they think I'm that... Missing the point of playing the game yeah, sometimes. I, 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 <laughs> it, it's literally that point where you, Literally that point where, where you just don't understand where someone's coming from. I, I don't see what they hope to gain with this. I mean... Uh, First they, of all, it's obviously, it is, it's not real. I mean, I mean, they were talking at one point about, you know, 
accusing people of war crimes for, for, for committing them within a virtual environment. Well, you know, the whole point is it isn't real. No one's being hurt in reality. Now, you could question the mentality of somebody who wants to do that even in a virtual sense of the word. But, you know, ultimately, it's just a game. When, when, when I mean, how do you define a war crime? If a, if a drone, a US drone blows up a school in Pakistan and kills those kids, no one gets, no one gets done for that. No. As far as I'm aware. So, but, so you know, they have it's, it's some just, kind of thing. That's real world stuff, not even in, the, in a game. That's a real mm. world situation. So, they're, yeah, they're looking for PR, aren't they? Let's be honest about it. But I don't see how you can actually incorporate some kind of um, punishment for that within the game without actually trivia- <laughs> trivializing it itself. I mean, the, the, uh, who is it? Bohemia behind the, the armor games, which are kind of, you know, very realistic. Um, have said that yes, they're they're kind of on board with this, and that if if you kind of uh, attack people, then your allied troops will uh, will attack you. But that's just basically a game shooting you for shooting someone else. That's that's just a game that just over screen. Like a good idea, though. I could be whereas, that. so your allies turn on you. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the whole point of the kind of war crimes would be right. You finish the game, everything's done, and then so you know, kind of six months later, you get a little online pop-up notifications saying, by the way, you know, please report to The Hague. <laughs> please you know? report for a long and expensive trial yeah. or you'll be hanged at the end of it. <laughs> exactly. It, it just... <laughs> yeah, I, I just can't see how they want it in Does any way people integrated. playing Grand Theft Auto are going to get sent beating tickets in the post? <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's the point. I mean, it's it's... It, it does kind of highlight a little bit of a, a kind of generational shift in that to, to some people... The fiction of games is a real-world representation of what you would do. Um, you know, completely bypassing this idea that it's simply a premise that is being played out in the same way that you would watch a film. You know, it, it's this idea that no, you would only watch a film about things that you do, and you would only play a game about things that you do. In fact, if anything, the whole point of some of these games, like Grand Theft Auto, is that it, it provides you an opportunity to do something you would never ever do in real life. Um, that is- you know. Um, no, that, yeah, I was just going to agree. That's exactly the point of it. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's almost venting in in a sense. And the games that in fact do show um, something, uh, you know, approximating war crimes. There was a game, Spec Ops: The Line, which had you know fantastic narrative just about that. The whole point is is that you know it's down to personal morality. As soon as you kind of take that away, then you've basically taken away part of the whole freedom of of the mechanic of playing games. Well, congratulations to the Red Cross's uh, PR man. He's done a fantastic job on <laughs> his just out. press release. He's, he's actually got us to speak about it for at least seven minutes here on the podcast and mentioned the Red Cross at least five times. That's how you do PR. You're right, Mark. It's a bit cynical. But it'd be fun if you go speeding tickets through the post. And that, that's what you call interaction. Well, yeah, I mean, they could design little apps and everything. It could flash up on your smartphone or something a day later. I didn't think it was much fun when I did get a speeding ticket in the post. <laughs> Do you get the one from the sex clinic saying you've, you've got VD because you slept with a hooker? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and an arrest warrant <laughs> for mass murder, armed robbery, whatever it was you were up to in the game. I wasn't talking about the game. Yeah, no. I know you weren't. But, um... uh, anyway, so um, GTA 5, um, we are still talking about this. Uh, the guys are coining it in. Uh, it's making a shitload of money and everybody's talking about it but seemingly there are uh, a segment of gamers that are not happy yes um well i mean nice little segue from one story about torture to another um (laughs) i mean gta online 
it, it was a it was a genius move from Rockstar to try and to split the single player and the online side of things, um, because traditionally you have you know one side takes precedence. So if you have a, an online focused game, there will usually be a story, a, a campaign, but it'll be a few hours, and people tend to just skip over it. You know, a lot of people if they load up something like Call of Duty or Battlefield, they won't even bother with the single player. And so, therefore, there's always kind of part of that production where if you're pumping in a hundred million, then the focus has to go on one side or the other. With Grand Theft Auto, there was this kind of lore of a big online world. Now, if you wanted to be a cynic about it, you'd say that in fact Rockstar are seeing the writing on the wall for traditional AAA games. In that, you know, budgets spiraling into the hundreds of millions. Sooner or later, you will take a hit, and you know it will all come crashing down. Whereas Persistent online worlds, as we've seen with with massively multiplayer uh, online games, if you continue to drip feed content out there and you put in place some kind of a mechanic for people to actually spend in small payments, microtransactions, you can make absolute masses of money. Now, GTA Online has that in, whereby a lot of the game is based around buying things and kind of unlocking things and amassing wealth, and so they've put in place a system whereby you can buy virtual money with real money so it's it's a grand idea and by splitting the single player and the online side of things so that the online releases a fortnight later it stops that kind of malaise whereby people would kind of play one side of the game and then they'd kind of just neglect the other side so therefore people have played the the single player they've they've completely sated they've played it for a fortnight fantastic i want more then they jump on october 1st the online side of things unlocks the only problem is it it didn't work other than that it was a genius plan um just seems connection issues Uh, rockstar said to expect some problems but if my own personal experience was anything to go by it was just hell just black screens, timing out, things not loading. And then there are lots of people who lost saves. And that's the kind of thing that just kind of decreases confidence in the product overall. And there, I just know so many people now who've just said, well, I've tried for the best part of a week. I'll leave it. I'll come back to it in, in a month when it's stable. But the, the real danger is, is that they just don't come back. In a month's time, they'll be looking at new consoles. They'll be finishing other games. Um, what, what was the reason behind the problems then? Was it just they hadn't have enough server server um, capacity or they just underestimated I mean because clearly demand was going to be huge if anything to go the sales or anything to go by on the game itself you think that's a bit of a schoolboy error on the part of Rockstar really they released a, a you know a little list of known problems there were lots of things saying um, you know there was something to do with the the PSN servers and the like whereas the the overriding feeling is their servers were basically just not up to it that they they were sitting on the biggest game of the year, potentially, you know, the biggest seller of an entire ever. console generation, yeah, ever. And they knew that by delaying the online side of things, the one great danger of it was that you would suddenly get a tidal wave of people joining up. Whereas, in, in fact, if you have a single player and an online release at the same time, you risk people not getting the hype for the online side of things, but they're more likely to trickle in in smaller numbers and so they'll be more manageable. However, as soon as October the 1st came about, everyone, this kind of flood of people, just hit Rockstar's servers, and I just don't think they were up to it. I, I, you know, Even with 
you know, the knowledge that it would be an absolutely massive game, I don't think they'd quite expect it to be, you know, raking in, you know, whatever, a billion in three days. So one way or another, you know, the infrastructure wasn't there. There were bugs, there were problems, but it just seemed to be there were general connection issues. It wasn't like, you know, there was a, an array of different problems for lots of different people. It was generally the same thing, which is you just can't stay connected. So did you say you can spend real money buying virtual money in, within the game? Yes. And then spend it in the game, presumably. Yes. So like, you know, <laughs> can you, take, if you, can you, can you make, make money in the game and then take the money out again? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that would go against the point of trying to make huge amounts of money <laughs> for the developers. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it's that kind of, it's that slow move towards the, the MMO world, which is that in fact, if you just keep up consistent content and you keep on putting out updates, in fact, you know, there's, a, there's such a huge market there and people have been kind of talking about, wouldn't it be great to have a, a Grand Theft Auto online, a, you know, a proper persistent online world of some kind, you know, ever since Grand Theft Auto 3 came out. Um, so it really did seem like the answer to a lot of people's dreams. But, um, you know, it, it, it's a bold move. I, I think, um, you know, the... Everyone's waiting for the the AAA title bubble to 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 burst. Um, you know they they put a fair amount into Max Payne Three, which was a big game but didn't sell as much. And so perhaps they were thinking that with Grand Theft Auto Four falling a little bit flat, still selling absolute bucket loads and everything, and still critically acclaimed. But a lot of people saying, well, not as enthusiastic for the latest game. Perhaps they'd assumed that there wouldn't be quite the same demand just suddenly hitting their servers. I don't know. MMO. Is, is that a boy band? You'd know more about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so interesting stuff. And did I tell you my hometown's in uh, GTA 5? Yes, you did. All right, okay. Uh, let's move on from gaming news. Uh, we'll be back in a second with movie news. So moving on to movie news, uh, an unexpected price tag. The Hobbit budget uh, now five hundred and sixty million, and still counting, Steve. Uh, That's right, yeah, Phil. It's um, they had they had to announce uh, in New Zealand. They had to s submit their accounts, which is why everyone suddenly found out how much they'd spent to date on the Hobbit movies. And so far, it's five hundred and sixty million US dollars. Now. Um, that's so far, of course. There's still uh, another two months of uh, post-production to go on the second movie, which comes out on 12th of December, I think it is. And, of course, a whole another year next year of production, post-production and effects work and everything on the third movie. So you can, you're looking at, I reckon, $700 million before they finish. And that's not counting on including marketing costs, of course. So uh, easily a easily billion dollars all in on these movies, I think at least, if not more, which suddenly starts to make Cameron's billion dollars for three Avatar movies a pretty good value. Um, reason it's so expensive, obviously, they, there was the fact they went from two movies to three uh, quite late, well, actually, after principal photography. So that added a lot of money because they had to do a whole lot of reshoots. Uh, well, not just reshoots, sorry, but actually shoot more footage. But of course, the other reason it's expensive is it's shooting in 3D and it's shooting at 48 frames a second, uh, which we discussed at length when The Hobbit Unexpected Journey came out at the end of last year. Uh, and that's added to the production costs. Um, so yeah, I mean, five hundred. I mean, it's, it's, it's nearly double as much now already to make the Hobbit as it was to make the Lord of the Rings films. Um, so uh, Jackson's. Uh, I mean, to be honest, though, I don't think uh, Warner Brothers are too bothered. I mean, they made a billion dollars off of the Hobbit Part One, 
you can expect to make a billion off the next two each. So three billion off the back of a billion investments, probably a pretty good return, really. But it's interest there because everybody, uh, certainly that I've spoken to in the real world, <laughs> not 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 online and not AV geeks like us, but uh, normal people with normal lives. Everybody I've spoken to about the Hobbit, they were a bit nonplussed. Uh, yeah, didn't like that's it. True one of that interested in it certainly hasn't got the momentum that the lord of the rings had um so i was going to say i think they'll struggle to replicate two and three what they made for the first yeah they will i think i think um first of all a billion dollars was a disappointment i think they expected to make more than that i mean they made one point one point one million billion off of turn of the king um you know each film progressively made more because you know they, they were Increasing in popularity was a good word of mouth. People were looking forward to the next Lord of the Rings film. And the last one, Return of the King, made $1.1 something billion, which was at the time was second only to Titanic in terms of box office. Uh, it was a huge, huge hit. Uh, the Hobbit came out. Obviously, A, it had been a significant amount of time between the, the Lord of the Rings films and The Hobbit already. But uh, I think there was a lot of goodwill still towards them. And that helped push the Hobbit box office up. But even a billion dollars was a, was a disappointment. I think they were looking for numbers much bigger than that. Um, I think they're going to see a significant tail off on the second and third films. You're right, Mark, because I don't think the word of mouth and the perception was actually that the Hobbit was particularly good. Um, I've actually warmed to it more now. I've seen it a couple of times at home, but when I saw it at the cinema, I was quite disappointed. Um, now, of course, they've got the extended cut coming out on the fifth of November. Although it's only like fifteen minutes longer. Yeah, they've added 15 minutes. You're right, Phil. Uh, Does it need to be longer? (laughs) And that's another reason why I I went off it. It was the length. And all right, if it was, if it was, um, if it was one of those movies where you didn't actually notice because you were wrapped up in the story and it and it was moving at an incredible pace and um, you know it was it, it it just held your attention. It didn't do that. I was continually looking at my watch. My arse was sore. Yeah, but I think part of that pump. Have you watched it since you saw it at forty-eight frames a second? Yes, because it definitely it's definitely better. Well, at 40, 48 frames per second, it should have been quicker. <laughs> no, but it's distracting, <laughs> isn't it? You're sitting there thinking, "I hate this. This is terrible." I think I when I saw it at uh, in two D at twenty-four frames a second on Blu-ray, I enjoyed it a lot more. I still I still feel there is a lot of padding going on. They're trying to make a three hundred page kids book into three three hour plus movies. That, that movie could have been an hour and a half. Yeah, easily. Easy, I haven't said that. I've seen the trailer for, for Desolation of Smaug. Yeah, and as well. Nah. I'm getting quite excited. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you can't be a bit of dragon action, can you? Come on. A bit drag action, bit did you dragon say? dragon Ah, oh, right, sorry. <laughs> I thought we were getting back to the rock there. Uh, anyway, moving on. Talking about 1.2 billion, that's what the BBC uh, has made in terms of British TV exports. Well, not the BBC, just no, I mean, British TV generally, because obviously... Downton's huge, and that's ITV. And obviously BBC have got things like Sherlock and Doctor Who, which are massive money makers for them now. Um, yeah, $1.2 billion, uh, sorry, yeah, $1.2 billion pounds, uh, from British TV exports across the world is, is, is really, I mean, I'll tell you that these days, TV's where the money is, <laughs> not in the is movies. That solely, <laughs> is that solely in actual shows sent, or does that include like licensing? I'm thinking stuff like, like the the... You know the format for things like the X Factor and the like. Could be. Uh, I mean, for something like um, I don't think the BBC make. Did the BBC make any money off of Top Gear anymore? Because doesn't, doesn't yes, Clarkson own the rights? No, they they bought it back. Um, that's how Clark, Clarkson made an absolute killing on that. I think it was something like six or nine million quid he made from from his shareholding in that. Uh, but they but bought, you're right. They brought it back in house. 
Mark's right about um, you know if you can sell a successful format. So who wants to be a millionaire or QI um, to other countries? That's a great money maker as well, and a lot of shows do do that. But certainly there's there's been some big ticket shows that have have sold well you know in places like the states, but also elsewhere in the world. Um, and certainly, I mean, Downton's massive in America. <laughs> yeah, massive. Um, God knows why. <laughs> I watched a bit of it uh, and it never seen it. Good. Not interested in it, and there's not a lot of TV that I'm actually interested. If if I was Sherlock, Sherlock is good. Come yeah, on, Sh- Sherlock is good, um, uh, but I'm struggling to think of any other British dramas. Uh, my schedule at the minute is HBO stuff, really, um, Netflix stuff. Oh well, Luther's worth watching. That's on Netflix. Um, so anyway, moving from TV, Ed, uh, we're going into India now. We thought the health warnings about smoking were bad in this country. Uh, Woody Allen's refusing to show his latest film in India because, Steve? Well, because in India, apparently, if you show a character smoking, you have to put a written warning over the scene itself saying smoking is bad for you. And Woody Allen refused to do that in Blue Jasmine um, and therefore has refused to release the film in in India. Uh, Which is, you know, I've got to say, I can can totally see his point of view. I mean, I understand smoking is not good for you. I think that's fairly well known, uh, and obviously the government needs to. You know, any government will, will it's, have it's some sort of health ridic- program. It's bloody ridiculous, absolutely. But to, to ruin a film, I mean, because yeah. it's obviously a, it's not like they're saying smoke, are they? They're, they're, it's just are, a character they go- in the film. Are smoking. they going to do the same for major works of art where you know somebody's depicted as having a cigarette or a cigar? They're going to have a big health warning right across it. You know, well, you see in American movies uh, when when you see movies um, in the US with their MPAA rating, you know, like PG thirteen contains scenes of smoking. Like, really, that's not that big a deal, is it? But I like that they're doing it in some of the deal. in some of the most polluted cities in the world. Well, I was going to say having a cigarette <laughs> yeah. in India in Mumbai a bit pointless. That would only improve the air that you're breathing. Wouldn't well, it? what what about the film we've quoted uh, on the podcast? What are you going to do with that? It's about heroin addiction. And it shows scenes of taking heroin. Are they going to have big flashing banners that. over that? If, if it shows, and we're going to come onto this when I talk about filth, but if, you know, if it shows characters indulging in bad behaviour, but with consequences, um, maybe it's less of an issue than it, than if someone's. Because let's be honest, yeah. you, know, you can look quite cool having a fag. Toxic plasmosis. <laughs> Bless you. But um, you know, one, one if of it the makes smoking look though. cool. And it, and it makes kids want to smoke. That is yeah, what obviously. And, and, and of course, then you got the Daily Mail angle and all these things, haven't you? Where, where it's just you know, somebody think of the children. I mean, The Simpsons have got that bang on, that joke <laughs> still running. You know, someone please think of the children. Anyway, moving on. Gravity opened uh, U.S. box office over the weekend, Steve, and it scored a massive amount of money and huge, huge word of mouth. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 50 million uh, over the weekend in the States, which yeah, you may not sound like a lot compared to some of the big blockbusters, but this is a film opening in October. Uh, it's not a franchise. It's not based on one existing property. It's not a sequel. And that's actually the biggest October opening ever for any film. Um, and the word of mouth on, on Gravity has been started. I saw a longer trailer for it, actually, at the weekend when I was at the cinema, and uh, it looks amazing. I, I really am genuinely excited about seeing this, and, and I think it's a film that you really need to see in 3D. The fact the 3D takings were higher, um, the percentage of 3D takings for, for Gravity were higher than they were for even Avatar. Uh, and, and from what I've read, even from people like Cameron saying that what François Caron's done here is, is the next stage in you know, cinema technology, in, in, in filmmaking, it's, it's taking something like 3D, but basically putting you in space. Uh, and I'm pretty up for that. So I, I, everyone's saying, if you can see it on an IMAX screen, see it on a big IMAX screen, totally immerse yourself in the experience. Um, 
and yeah, it, 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 I'm, I'm really genuinely excited about this film. I think it's going to be a real experience. But I bet it's got sound effects. And no, not no? in Deep Light Space. He actually does in the in the trailers. There are sound effects, and they said they put those in because they wanted something in the trailer. But in the film, when they're in space, it's silent. Oh well, the the only thing you need left then is just to uh, you know take all the air out of the cinema and and bang, there you go, absolutely <laughs> realistic. It's, I I don't know. I mean, it's interesting the way they've done it because. Um, I was watching a documentary, or not like a small piece on online, like a five-minute uh, promo. But they were talking about the technology they were using to shoot the film, and obviously, um, they they were um, they did a lot of stuff where they just shot the actors' faces, and then the rest of it's all CG um, for like spacewalking and that kind of stuff. But in order to get the lighting on their faces to match the lighting in the scene that they're going to create, you know, in the computer, they had LCD panels <laughs> around the face. To reflect the lighting onto their faces, it was they've really gone to some staggering level amount of attention to detail to try and make this as utterly realistic and believable. Were they LCD or LED? <laughs> but yeah, Alfonso. I mean, I'm a big fan of Alfonso Cuarón. I think he's a fantastic director. All right, I we get. All right, we get. We get it, Steve. You're excited. Calm down. Just calm down and breathe. And what was it the cinema this week? I saw Filth at the weekend, which um, will tie in with our quotes this week as well. Uh, it's based upon the book by uh, Irving Welsh. It's set in Edinburgh, and it centres around an Edinburgh police officer who uh, is basically having a mental breakdown. Um, uh, as such, he's indulging in every possible kind of bad behaviour you can imagine, from drug-taking, sex, drinking, boozing, fags, a lot, um, whilst in the middle of investigating a racially motivated murder. James McAvoy plays the police officer, and it's absolutely, it's a towering performance from James McAvoy. It's easily the performance of his career so far. Uh, he's amazing in the film. It's not an easy film to watch, though. It's being marketed as, as a comedy, and certainly in the trailers and on the posters, it's not suggesting it's going to be a last-minute comedy. It's not. There are scenes that are funny in it, but it's it's pitch-black humour, and it is a grim, you know, there, there, you know, there isn't any, there isn't much in the way of lightness or, you know, or, or or um, it's, it's unrelenting in terms of its, of its grimness at times. And therefore, and there's no kind of, at the ending, there's no um, redemption. I, I th <laughs> it's, I think, it's pretty... I think Irvin Welsh, you know, knowing it's coming from him, you've got to expect that. You know, yeah, I yeah, think, but I even spotting had moments of, uh, you know, of, of sort of, like, for example, the scene where Renton's in the uh, toilet trying to get the spotty out of the, out of the Kazi. You know, you think that could be disgusting. And it could have been just revolting to the point of extremity. But... It then suddenly becomes this sort of surreal moment where he's in lovely clear blue water, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, so it kind of takes the edge off off, off the grimness in, in that film. They don't do that in filth. Filth is very much unrelentingly grim. Um, I guess that's the point. That's what they were trying to do. That was their, their intention from the beginning, and they've succeeded admirably. But it doesn't make it the most comfortable viewing experience. Um, and the character is, is, is a total misanthrope, you know, with very little redeeming features, even though there is, there is you know, a backstory, and, and he was a good man once, and you, you get to understand why he's... That this life is spiraling out of control. Um, there are certain plot elements which I'm not, not going to go into here, but you can pick up on them pretty quickly if you're paying attention. Um, so the ending didn't surprise me, um, but but it was definitely uh, you know it it, it, and it is funny in places. There are bits which are laugh out loud funny uh, and, and pretty revolting at times. Um, and I think if you're you know from Edinburgh like you are, Phil, you'll absolutely <laughs> they'll be even even funnier. But um, yeah, James McAvoy though, just I mean, he's got a fantastic cast. Got Jim Broadbent in it. You've got um, um, Shirley Henderson. You've got Jamie Bell. Um, John Sessions is in it as well, I think. Um, and you know the, the, the cast is superb. 
the writing and directing. There's, there's actually some quite surreal moments in it too. It's, it, it has moments that's wrapped. Very, again, uh, it, it stays pretty faithful to the book. Um, uh, in, the, um, in the book, for example, that I think there's a tapeworm in his stomach which gradually achieves you know, sort of consciousness and it fills in the background to his, his story when he was younger. Um, so in the film, they do that in a different way, but they do even make mention of the tapeworm at one point. So it's it's you know it's a quite a clever adaptation. It is quite surreal in places. It's unrelentingly grim. It has a, a towering central performance from James McAvoy. Um, if you're easily offended, don't go and see it. It is <laughs> pretty. It deserves an 18 certificate, believe me. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, if you're a fan of Irving Welsh or um, James McAvoy or, or just fancy fancy seeing it, seeing it, then certainly it's true. Go and see it. But um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's not a comedy the way it's being marketed. Okay, well, that wraps up the AV Forums podcast for this week. Thanks very much for downloading and listening. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And you can bookmark avforums.com for the latest reviews, news and videos. And don't forget, we have big changes coming to AV Forums and that's going to happen very soon. But all I need to do now is thank Mark Botwright. Good chips. And Steve Weathers. Our leaders are a bunch of effete arseholes. Was and it set in Bombay? <laughs> <laughs> that is the worst Scots accent I have ever heard. Do that again. Do it again. <sighs> our leaders are a bunch of effete arseholes. <laughs> That's uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> <laughs> and few haven't felt that good since Archie Gemmell scored against Holland in 1978. And that wraps up this week's podcast. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you again next Wednesday. Wednesday.